Welcome to The Sugar Science. I'm Monica Wesley, uh, founder of The Sugar Science, and I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Julie Sneddon. She's an assistant professor, UCSF School of Medicine Diabetes Center. And we're going to be talking about FEV and her work in sort of tracking what is FEV doing in the pancreatic islet cells. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, Monica. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. I'd like to just congratulate you um, with recognition of your Helmholtz Young Investigator Award in 2019. That is a huge accomplishment as a young scientist, and I think it's uh, just amazing that uh, so so quickly in your career you've gotten such recognition. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It was uh, really an honor to receive uh, and, a, and a surprise when I found out that I had won it, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Great. Let's just talk quickly, a brief history of how you got interested in type 1 diabetes. Sure. So I'll just step back a little bit and just say that in my laboratory, very broadly, we study pancreas development and disease, as we'll talk about today, and also regeneration. And um, I knew from a very young age that I thought it would be very important to me to try to choose something in my life to, to devote myself to in terms of a, a purpose or a career that would be aimed at improving human health and disease. It was sort of a question, though, as to how exactly I was going to do that. So medicine and science were both strong callings. Um, in the end, I, I decided to go into research, of course, as you know. Um, but I was drawn to the field of type 1 diabetes largely due to life experiences with two very special people in my life, both of them very dear friends. Um, one was a very good friend of mine in high school. I met her in AP chemistry because we sat next to one another. Our last names were alphabetically adjacent, so we were physically adjacent. So I got to know her and became very good friends with her. And uh, she had not been diagnosed that long um, prior to this class. Uh, I guess we were sophomores when we met. Um, with type 1 and she had a really difficult time with her um, with her type 1 and it was quite difficult for her to manage it was really a daily struggle so I started taking orange juice uh, packs juice boxes in my backpack to school and ended up taking her to the nurse's office quite a few times a week and so I got to see really firsthand just how challenging it was for her and how it really impacted her daily life you know her ability to just be in her classes and to focus. And um, very sadly, uh, that story has a sad ending because I, I remember, you know, we went to college and then during my PhD, I was in my second year, I guess, and was working really hard to prepare for my qualifying exam. And just about an hour before walking into that room with the examiners, I got a phone call that my friend had passed away. Um, and so this was oh. incredibly devastating and we Terrible. were- only 23, I think. So, you know, she just was an amazing, very bright light with an incredible sense of humor, very bright and quick and would call things out, you know, how they are. And so it was just such a, a loss for the world and certainly for me personally. So yeah. that was one, um, you know, sort of personal um, experience with type one. And then in college, I met someone who became one of my very closest friends to this day. She also has type one and she's also just an incredibly remarkable person. She's one of the bravest people I know. And lately has had to struggle with some very, very um, significant health challenges related to her diabetes. So this friend is a very special person and she inspired my desire really to devote myself to this field, um, first as a postdoc with Doug Melton and subsequently in my own lab here at um, UCSF. So I'm not sure if that's a short version of, the, of how no, I got connected, great. but it's a very personal one. 
That's really uh, inspirational. And um, I would say, I speak for myself, and I'm sure most of our team members actually have type one themselves, or they uh, have very close connection to it. So we're very appreciative of that um, sharing. And you know, that it prompted you to move into the scientific space because you're also a, a really a bright light and you're, you're bringing a lot of um, new and exciting ways to do science in this realm. Well, thank you so much. I would also just mention one more thing, which is that, you know, I, I, you know this more than anyone else, certainly, or as, as much as anyone else, is that you really, you never, as people say, you never get a, quote, vacation from type one. You know, it's a constant concern. It needs to be constantly managed. And I just think especially because this is a something that, you know, is diagnosed largely in children, um, it's just incredibly motivating that although we have treatments, thank goodness, um, we don't have a cure. And so our lab and many others around the world, as you know, and many family members and friends are really, really dedicated and devoted to the idea that we need to find a cure for this, not just a treatment. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'd say even just from my reading of the literature and following the field very closely, um, scientists are working as hard as humanly possible to achieve that endpoint. I mean, I know some people in the community, uh, you know, get nervous that maybe that's not the case, but it really is the case. And um, you and others just showcase that every time we speak. So yeah, thank you. I know it's so hard to ask for patience, you know, in, in a situation like this where completely understandably anyone who has a loved one a uh, friend, family member themselves who have, you know, who, who deal with this every day. I completely understand why, um, you know, patience is not a virtue in this case and the desires to have yeah. it is now. And I completely understand that. Um, and I just can maybe reassure you, as you just said, that we really are working as, as you know, sort of humanly as fast as possible and very optimistic though about what the near future holds. Um, yeah. Know, different options, which is extremely exciting. It is, and optimism is growing within the scientific community too. So uh, I love to hear that. Let's talk about some of your recent work. What's um, what's going on? Can you just talk about your work that's sort of pertaining to dissecting pancreatic islet lineage? You know, kind of creating this sort of Venn diagram, um, comparing mouse versus human islet development, um, as well as you know, I mean, you're doing a ton of ton of different things, uh, all you know, very exciting. But the you're also looking at sort of in vitro versus in vivo development, and of course, Bev. Yes. Would you, would you like to start? Sure. I think it's a great question. It's sort of a long answer in a way. So let me just try to summarize, if I could, some of the different work that we're doing, which I think yeah. all relates to a central purpose. Right. So you know, we have a, a particular focus on cell replacement therapy, right, as a curative measure for type one, and I will mention that the idea of cell replacement therapy it's really sort of been the holy grail of the stem cell field, right? So the idea is that we take um, a disease state where, uh, or, you know, yeah, a disease state where there's a particular, let's say, cell of, of interest that's known to be either destroyed or lost due to injury or disease or aging, um, and then try to replace that cell. And so type 1 diabetes is really an excellent candidate for this because we do know the cell that's destroyed. We know it's the pancreatic beta cell. And in fact, furthermore, I think we're fortunate as a community, scientific and medical community in this sense, that the proof of principle for cell replacement therapy has actually been done for diabetes, and that's in the form of islet transplantation, right? So if anyone yes. is not familiar with this, islet transplantation is a process 
by which cadaveric islets, so donor islets, are infused into the portal vein of diabetic recipients. There's really incredible progress that's been made in that field by an incredible set of uh, doctors and um, transplant surgeons and scientists. But unfortunately, despite this tremendous you know, advance in this field, and it's continuing to advance and is you know, very promising, islet transplantation still suffers from uh, a, severe, a severe dearth um, of material to be transplanted. So just yeah. like in any organ transplant, right, we don't have enough donors. And so yep. this is, you know, hence the work in my lab and a number of others um, towards generating what we consider to be a highly replenishable source of beta cells. And that's from an alternative source, which is um, stem cells, human stem cells. So one thing I want to mention here, though, is that even when these types of islet transplantation uh, approaches are effective, I do want everyone to note that this involves the transplant of whole islets. It's not the transplant of isolated beta cells, right? It's the transplant of, of whole islets, which themselves are basically little mini organs. Yes. And so what we think about a lot in our lab is how to not just replace the beta cell, but probably really how to replace that functional tissue unit, which is the islet. And so one of the aims that we have is to build islet tissue from stem cells. And the way we're trying to do that is using a suite of different approaches. But importantly, I would say what unifies them is, is we think of this as a sort of new tissue engineering strategy based on what we call rational design. Meaning we need to know first what we should be aiming to build before we start building it, right? So yes, you, my, need a, you need architectural plans before you start getting your building materials in order. 100% right. So as my colleague and, and collaborator, uh, Dr. Zev Gardner says, we need the CAD file, you know, we need the blueprint <laughs> essentially yeah. uh, before we start to try to build it. And so how would we, what, what is our roadmap essentially to building tissues? How would we go about thinking about this? Well, we break it down into two conceptual pieces or parts. Number one is we need to understand the normal developmental trajectory that pancreas cells take in order to become, let's say, a beta cell or any of the other um, hormone producing cells. And this involves, and we'll talk about this in a minute, I think, but this involves understanding what the relevant progenitor states are, how they're all lineage related, and also what differentiation cues coax these cells along the desired path. And then the a lot of information. There's a lot of information there. Ton of information. And we'll get and we can talk more in detail as well. But the, let me just maybe quickly say that the second sort of broad piece of this, I think, in terms of building a tissue, is then we need to figure out how are we going to assemble these engineered tissues together. And here I think we need to think about two key aspects. One is we really need to pay attention, I would argue, to cues that come from the microenvironment, the niche. Um, in order to be able to recapitulate the relevant environmental tissue context, because that's critical both to the formation and also to the function of these tissues. Yeah. But then the second piece is transplanting and testing the function in vivo, in a, in a, in a body, <laughs> in a mouse or in a rat or in a human being. And this is really critical. And this is where I would say one of the main kind of rate limiting steps are right now in our field is um, the transplantation is not trivial and trying to figure out which uh, anatomical niche is going to be most receptive and is going to best facilitate uh, vascularization of the graft um, and function and things like that is, is quite 
important. So we're working on that as well. So those yeah. are, that's a very, very big picture kind of roadmap as to how we think about cell replacement therapy for curing type one. And then just to address your really good question about FEV and how this all plays in, um, essentially what we, what we did was we started off saying in that first part of the roadmap, as I said, we need to understand the de developmental trajectory that cells normally take. In other words, how does mother nature do this? Because we have this assumption that mother nature is probably going to do it best, <laughs> better yes. than do it in the dish, right? Yeah. So, evolution has, has ensured that. <laughs> that's right. Evolution, you know, we work hard in the lab and we've been doing this for a number of years, but evolution still has had quite a, a leg up on us in terms of time. Time. <laughs> yeah, he's right. Yeah. Um, so we, um, we really want to pay attention to how mother nature does this. And in other words, how these cells are made and specified in the body. And we started up, that's a big question and a complicated answer. And there's many pieces, as you just said. So we started off trying to answer this in mouse, which has really been the, I would say, guidepost for our field in terms of, you know, a place to start um, and, and the fact that it's much easier to um, suss out some of these lineage relationships and cell types and things like that in model organisms such as mice. And so a lot of what we know about pancreas development really is rooted in um, mouse and you know, rodent development in general, but mouse in particular. Yeah. So we started off in looking at, at mouse cells, mouse pancreas during development. And we really wanted to get single cell resolution um, in terms of understanding this development. We wanted an atlas, if you will, of every cell and every cellular player how it was related to one another, and um, the different transcriptional programs that seem to be active in each of these cell types. And we wanted to do that all across developmental time. So what we did was we applied a, um, at the time, very, very new um, technique called single cell RNA sequencing. Many people will have heard of this or are using it themselves. Yeah. And it's a powerful approach because, you know, in the sort of, quote, old days when I was a graduate student, <laughs> I was looking at, um, I, I was doing, uh, looking at global transcriptional profiling, and I was very fortunate to be in the lab of Pat Brown, who was at Stanford, and um, he, you know, really developed this tool called the microarray, which now probably sounds so antiquated, but that was the way that we were able to now profile the expression of you know, all the genes in a cell but it was in a sample that was quite often heterogeneous. And so we got the equivalent of bulk seek. Yeah. <laughs> and so the ability, bulk, <laughs> but the, but the, you know, it's sort of the, the analogy that I've heard, which I like a lot is if you're, if you're making a fruit smoothie, um, you know, bulk seek or microarray lets you sort of sample through the straw uh, and taste that delicious smoothie. And you might be able to pick up hints of strawberry and hints of mango and a bit of yogurt and these things, but you won't really know um, the precise ratio and how many strawberries there were, and you won't know exactly what was in that particular strawberry on an individual basis. Yeah, now, it's an excellent we, analogy. Yeah, and when we do uh, a single cell RNA sequencing experiment, it's much more like you know looking at a fruit platter where you can again sort of query each individual piece of fruit and also you know the relative ratios and things like that so not a perfect analogy but a pretty good one that i've heard before and yeah, so we wanted to, yeah we want to get that single cell sorry go ahead do you guys find yourselves using uh, the 10x genomics platform yes we do so we very early on uh decided we evaluated a few things and we very early on um went with the 10x platform and i will say that um, we've been 
really pleased with how it's performed in, in our hands and with a number of collaborators whom we've um, tried to help along the way, similarly using that uh, you know, set of tools and different organisms. And so, yes, we use the 10X Genomics platform and um, it, you know, there's a lot of really nice tools, both um, sort of uh, wet lab as well as the computational tools that are you know, being developed for that platform. So it's, it's quite powerful. Yeah. And so we, yeah, we, we first approached this problem, as I said, looking at mouse development and we published a paper a couple years ago, uh, which was meant to be sort of a, an atlas, a single cell atlas of pancreatic development in the mouse across developmental time. And one of the things that came out of that work was um, that we were um, excited to discover a new cell type, which is a pancreatic progenitor. It's an endocrine progenitor. Mm -hmm. And um, it has some really interesting properties with respect to its ability to give rise to all of the different hormone expressing differentiated cell types in the endocrine pancreas. And so if I could make another analogy for people who may not be as familiar with this question of, of what's called lineage, um, before we had done our study, um, people had done a lot of beautiful work in the mouse to figure out that um, there was a cell that was marked by that transcription factor called neurogenin-3, which eventually gave rise to all of these different daughter, so-called daughter cell types. And so people used to think of this neurogenin-3 progenitor as being, let's say, the mother cell and then give, giving rise to different daughter cells. And the daughter cells would be, for example, a beta cell or an alpha cell or a delta cell, et cetera. Yeah. And what our work, um, I think, clarified was that actually that uh, previously known neurogenin-3 cell was really probably the grandmother cell. <laughs> and then this FEV cell that we identified is really probably the mother or, or one of the mothers. And then the daughter cells um, come from the FEV expressing cell. And this is important not just because we do really want to get a, a faithful kind of catalog of all the different cells that are, that are there in the endocrine pancreas, but also because... And when we're thinking about how that process of self-fate selection is executed, it's important to be doing those studies um, and be looking at the right cell type, right? Yes. So if self-fate is actually executed, if that decision is made at the FEV state, then it's important that we be able to study the FEV state um, and that cell type. So we were excited about that work. Um, but one yeah. of the things we and, really and sorry, and that work was the, the work in mice where you basically showed that the neurogenin grandmother cell gave rise mm -hmm. to the FEV plus, and then That's that right. FEV plus gave rise to a pre-beta, which was FEV minus, and a pre-alpha, which was FEV plus, which then you know went on to become true beta and alpha cells. Is that right? That's right. And so um, you, you hit on something really, I think, also important, which is that um, we were able to take advantage of some very powerful and I would say really exciting um, software and computational tools that let us predict some of these lineage relationships. So these include yeah. tools like Monocle and now um, Slingshot um, that do essentially a computational version of uh, trying to reconstruct what the lineage relationship is among these cells just based on data after the fact which is an incredibly exciting and powerful um, thing to be able to do. Yeah. The nice thing about working in mice is that we then could test the predictions that came from this computational work 
um, by doing actual lineage tracing with genetics in mice. And so that's one of the advantages of working in mice is that you can test your predictions. And we were very pleased to see that those experimental approaches, those genetic approaches did um, confirm what we had predicted based on the computational data. So that was gratifying as well. Yeah, it's a really, it's a nice fact checker. I think, exactly. I think um, you know, you guys are using quite a, a few, looking through your papers, you're using some really interesting techniques these days. You've got UMAP, which basically captures data of, um, of you know, group cells uh, by transcriptional similarity. You've got Cell Finder, which um, you know, identifies biological subgroups using this novel clustering algorithm. I think that's even based at some lab at UCSF. You've got the Slingshot program that does lineage reconstruction. You've got Monocle like this, that does a sort of a pseudo-temporal lineage. So you have all these really cool um, you know, tools at your disposal. And um, you know, do you find people sort of coming to you saying, hey, you guys are using these things. Can you, can you help us out I'm, or help me sort of tweak what I'm doing because it's not uh, going as I expected or anything like that? And are you open to that, uh, hearing from young scientists who might, who might want to learn more about these powerful techniques? Yes, definitely. So the answer is yes. And yes, we do get those kinds of questions fairly frequently. And yes, we're happy to um, help, especially young scientists who are trying these approaches out. They're non-trivial to, uh, to learn and get to know well. And so we're, we're very happy to, to help people out in that way. And I, I have to give credit, though, here to um, the people in my lab, the, the graduate students and postdocs who are so talented, who really are the ones who are driving this forward on a day-to-day -day basis and, and um, also collaborators, um, including Aaron Tord's lab at UCSF for developing that self-finder algorithm, which yeah. um, I'll tell you about in a minute, but it was really transformative for us and also for some collaborators in terms of their analyses. So yeah, there's, a, there's all these suites of tools are, you know, very, um, they're sophisticated um, and uh, we you know we didn't develop them, but we use them and really appreciate them. And I think also just appreciate some of the caveats that you can encounter as a scientist, because there's a caveat with any approach, right? Yeah. Um, so sometimes it can be helpful also, I think, to folks just having a chat about how to design experiments in the first place, such that the kind of data that will come out will be able to um, help you elucidate, elucidate some of the biological questions that you're interested in asking. Totally agree. That's a great point. Um, yeah, well, and that is awesome that you're able to, that you're sort of there as a resource for people that might just have a, a, a quick question or, you know, to, to connect with you or your team about, you know, hey, how did this, what's the best practice for this uh, particular tool? So thank you for offering that up. Okay, sorry if we went on a little bit of a segue, but uh, let's go back to where we were. We were talking yeah, cool. a little bit. Uh, go ahead. So I, I, maybe I'll just also mention one more thing about what you just um, described in terms of different people trying to use these new techniques and just wanted to say that um, collaboration and um, working together with folks in different systems and using different approaches is, I think, one of the most personally gratifying aspects of, of a life in academic science. And so it's, it's really a, a pleasure and a treat to have the opportunity to work with people in different fields and, you know, tackling different questions and sort of living vicariously through their questions and their work. Um, uh, so yeah, that's always a really exciting and um, gratifying part of, of being a scientist, I think. I um, agree. Now back, to, back to what we were dis discussing before, I think we left off just 
with my description of this finding of this FEV population. And yes. I just wanted to use that to sort of set the stage for this new work that we are doing now, which we are um, hope, hoping to uh, submit very soon as a manuscript. But it's essentially looking now at human pancreas development. And mm -hmm. in particular, asking this question, uh, now that we have this, uh, you know, sort of guidepost of the Atlas of Mouse Development, which hopefully will let us understand human development with a much better framework and sort of scaffolding. Now we want to ask the question, how analogous is mouse and human uh, endocrine development? And yeah. that's a really important question, I think, for a couple reasons. Number one, it's just incredibly interesting to developmental stem cell biologists to understand how a system works, right? How does mother nature do this in, in human in particular? There's so much less known about human development and human tissues for obvious reasons. It's just, uh, we can't do the same kinds of experimentation in, in human um, cells as we can in, in model organisms. But also secondarily, I think it's incredibly important for us to get a more refined understanding at higher resolution for how in particular endocrine cells develop and execute their cell fate choices, let's say to a beta cell fate, um, because we wanna harness that knowledge to do an even better job with our stem cell platforms for generating beta cells in, in vitro, in the yeah. lab. And there right. are, yeah, absolutely. There are little diff. There are, you know, slight differences. The cytoarchitecture of the mouse eyelid is different That's than right. uh, you know, human. So you want to now you've got your sort of baseline, and now we want to, or you want to, you know, really finesse what the human eyelids uh, are doing and how do they get to their slightly different cytoarchitecture. And so you can mimic that and mm -hmm. and you know implant it right. That's right, exactly. And when I did my postdoc in, in the lab of Dr. Doug Milton at Harvard, there were incredibly intensive efforts in that lab, as well as in several other labs around the world that led to identification collectively of signals that would generate really glucose-sensing insulin-secreting cells from human pluripotent stem cells. And this work is really important, you know, this work from Doug's lab, as well as a number of other labs. And But there's still a number of challenges that we collectively sort of suffer from uh, for those of us doing these types of approaches in our labs. And one of the things I'll point out is that all of the protocols, um, in all of the protocols, some of which differ slightly from one another, we can make the early stages of these cells with quite high efficiency, which is wonderful. But then essentially we suffer, these protocols anyway, suffer from progressively lower efficiency as the cells progressively become more differentiated. Hmm. So the more we try to get to this beta cell fate or even just an endocrine cell fate, the efficiency drops off quite a bit. And yeah. so I would argue that this is in least in large part because we lack a fundamental understanding as to the, the mechanisms that are at play in, in human development. And so, um, you know, so much of our work in our field, as I said, has relied on insights gleaned from work on model organisms, but now we really wanted to um, focus on human. And so one of the things we did was We've performed now single, single cell RNA sequencing and also single cell ATAC sequencing, which we can get to in a minute, on developing human islet cells. And we found a number of, I think, key takeaway messages. Obviously, the, the data are very complex. We've done this across developmental time, and so there's a lot of data points, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of data points. And, um, but to, in order to tease out some of the main conclusions that I think are relevant for our discussion, 
Um, one of the things we found is that the cellular players um, are different between mouse and human. So we have many of the same cellular players, right? We certainly still have beta cells, we still have alpha cells, we still have that neurogenin population that we know about from mouse work done before I was even in the field. Um, but what we found is that we've identified now new progenitors never seen before. And um, we think, yeah, it's really exciting. And it includes a fev high progenitor population. So that's interesting with respect to our previous work, but there are additional ones as well. And so these are novel progenitors, we believe. And one of the things that's interesting is I, I think this is um, an important example that sort of helps make the case for why single cell RNA sequencing is valuable and also why looking in human tissue is valuable because um, if we had just sort of continued to assume that the progenitors were basically similar or the same between mouse and human, um, which is what was done before, then we would have missed this pop these populations. Um, yeah. And so we only know what to look for based on what we already know, <laughs> right? Yeah. We don't yes. know what we don't know. <laughs> yes. And so taking this kind of single cell RNA sequencing approach approaches, it's a double-edged sword in some ways because many people might criticize it and say, oh, it's very open-ended, it's, it's not hypothesis-driven. But on the flip side, the advantage is that you're not um, wedded to the same set of preconceived notions, if you will, and assumptions about what you're going to find. And instead, you just sort of ask the approach, you know, the approach involves just asking, show me all of the cellular players that can be detected, at least with this approach. Yeah. So take home message number one, there are additional progenitors that we're really excited about. And take home message number two, the question of lineage is also quite interesting. So the path that cells take to become islet cells is, um, we believe, different and um, we're you know we've reconstructed that with some of these uh, packages that we talked about earlier and um, it's quite fascinating because there are uh, different choices let's just say that these progenitors can take and one of the things now we're really focused on trying to understand and answer is how are these kind of pre-faded versions of progenitors uh, established in the first place. And we think that this may have to do with the chromatin state um, of these different progenitors and that they may be primed to take one path or another um, Fascinating. as well. And then lastly, I would just say that the molecular players, meaning the transcriptional regulators of sulfate selection, uh, there's certainly some overlap. So you talked about this idea of the Venn diagram, which I really like a lot. So there's certainly an overlap. <laughs> <laughs> some of these transcriptional regulators between mouse and human, but there are some unique regulators as well. And in fact, you know, family or two of transcription factors that have a number of different family members where the motif that they recognize is reported to be very, very similar, but it almost seems like they're maybe used sort of in a combinatorial code kind of fashion to um, execute uh bait selection towards different lineages. So we're really interested in that finding um, as well. Yeah, you wonder, I mean, if you're gonna build an islet for a mouse versus build an islet for a human, you know, you kind of think, okay, they, it is a great model system, but you, you kind of think, okay, if you're gonna build, you know, uh, a little um, wooden, you know, cart, versus a Mercedes. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you have to have different instructions. That's right. Um, and so, 
it might be more, as you're saying, sort of like more overlay or more um, just sophisticated, I guess we want to call it code, um, in place to, to do that. I mean, we're bigger, you know, we're, we're more mm -hmm. complex organisms. And so maybe that comes into play. It's fascinating to think about. Mm -hmm. Yes, and exactly. And the set point is different between mice and humans and, and our diet and feeding behaviors and our circadian rhythm and, you know, so many physiological aspects that are really quite complex. And we need to understand more about how all of those factors and many others that I didn't list you know, impact and, and um, dictate uh, and sort of interface with these different cellular components as well as their physiology and how they interact and also the structure of the islet um, as well. So it's really, really interesting. And there's so much that we still don't know, especially about uh, human pancreas. What about, let's go back to FEV for a second. Um, what, transcriptionally, what is FEV doing? Um, you know, you kind of touched on that, you know, what it's, how it's, how it might be working, but it can also work in serotonergic neurons. Um, and I guess is FEV playing a similar role in endocrine cells, uh, temporally? Mm -hmm. Uh, have you guys noticed that, uh, as, uh, as you're doing your work? And then also Michael German in 2011 published his paper showing FEV may bind to the insulin promoter. What could that mean? You know, and like, mm -hmm. What, you know, are you guys studying it in mice? What other potential binding partners might FEV have? Yeah, these are such fantastic questions. And I said, they're all things that we're actively studying in the laboratory right now. <laughs> so for some Good. of your questions, <laughs> for some of your questions, I don't have answers. And for some of them, I think I have some beginning answers. Um, so maybe we can first start with your really astute observation that um, FEV, also known as PET or EPET, um, is a gene that we weren't initially uh, very knowledgeable about before we found that it marks a key state, uh, progenitor state in mice. And then we started studying it and getting to know it a lot better. Um, and it turns out, as you said, FEV is well known and sort of notorious as a um, transcription factor that's critically important in serotonergic neurons, as you said. And one of the things I think is, is just fascinating is that um, in that 2011 paper that Mike German and Evan Daenerys, who has been very kind to provide us with a number of FEV-relevant mouse lines as well, um, when they published that paper, they were, it was an extension of, of some other really wonderful work um, that Mike and others have done, which has investigated this, fa I think, fascinating um, similarity transcriptionally between cells in the brain and the endocrine cells of the pancreas. Yeah. So even though these come from very, very different lineages, it turns out that again, mother nature doing her work, weaving her web, <laughs> um, a number of transcriptional sort of networks and transcription factors have been, I won't say recycled, but used in different contexts. And so yeah. um, one of the things we're really interested in understanding is exactly what you said is FEV acting similarly in these endocrine progenitor cells um, in the pancreas as it does in, let's say, serotonergic neurons. And um, to get at your other question, how are we studying that? Um, we're actually studying it both in mice and in humans. And I can tell you a little bit about how we're doing that. So Great. in the mouse, as I said, um, there's a um, scientist named Evan Daenerys who at Case Western, who has done a lot of work on FEV and made a lot of these important discoveries about the, the mechanism of action of FEV and its binding partners and its function. 
in serotonergic neurons. And he was very kind to um, send us a number of mouse lines that we now have in our laboratory. And these have some bells and whistles, if you will, genetic bells and whistles that will let us answer some of the questions that we're discussing. So one of the questions is essentially, what is FEV doing? Um, so we have knockout FEV animals. We also have um, floxed allele. So we can just knock out FEV in, let's say, neurogenin-3 expressing cells or oh, that's cool. um, in you know, uh, pancreas cells. Very and so cool. that's really nice because anytime we get a phenotype with the broad global knockout, you know, we worry a little bit, well, could it fab in the brain? Yeah. Um, it gets a little more complicated though, Monica, because, um, you know, neurogenin-3 is also expressed in the brain. Uh, again, getting back to this incredible similarity between some of these transcription factors in the brain and the pancreas. So getting that specific deletion can be a, a little bit complex, but we're teasing that out with some of those, the flox allele and the global knockout. But we're also looking at, starting to look at binding partners because you had that um, great question as well. So we have, thanks to Dr. Daenerys, we have a, um, a MCTAD FEV, so we can do chip seek experiments um, on cells at different, FEV expressing cells at different uh, times. And we also have a FEV GFP reporter, actually, it's, I think a YFP reporter mouse, mm -hmm. which lets us isolate the FEV expressing cells and then highly enriched for that population because it's relatively rare population because it's a progenitor population. Right. And so this has been very helpful for us to isolate those cells that we really want, enrich for them, and then do downstream studies. So we are looking at this now and um, a whole host of, of studies underway. But it's important, I think, to also study this in a human because we have this expectation now that there may be some similarities, but there may certainly be some differences in terms of what FEV is doing in human cells. So to start to get at its function in human cells, in some ways it's a bit more challenging, um, but we're very fortunate to have this stem cell, stem cell platform to generate endocrine cells. And one of the things we wanted to check right away was, okay, gosh, in our in vitro platform where we're going from stem cell to beta cell at the end, are we actually capturing um, this FEV high state, this sort of in vivo relevant progenitor, is it there? Yeah. And we tested this and we were very excited to see that it is indeed there and it's there right around the, the time that you would expect. So right around the cool. time that you're starting to make endocrine progenitors, which is really nice. Yes. So that's fortunate. <laughs> and um, what that meant was that we were able to use another really exciting technique that many people have heard about, um, partly because it won the Nobel Prize, uh, the developers <laughs> Nobel Prize this year. I mean, a yeah. wonderful example of two fantastic female scientists winning the Nobel Prize, which is very Hooray. exciting. Yes, yeah, it is. It's very inspiring. Great. Um, so that was for CRISPR-Cas9 uh, technology, genome editing technology. And so we've applied that kind of technology to our stem cells and we were able to knock out FEV and then ask what are the consequences of this FEV knockout on the generation of, let's say, beta cells that are functional. And um, it's not very nice to say that we, we do have a phenotype and it's pretty strong. And Wow, that's um, great. You know, yeah, it's really great because it provides us with some additional biological insights, but it also provides, I think, a platform for us to dissect out what is FEV doing. We also have, using CRISPR-Cas9, we've also created some other flavors of stem cell lines that will let us get at the question that you asked, which is, what are the binding partners of FEV? And I think that's particularly important to look at at different stages because my one of my sort of pet hypotheses is that 
Dev is likely acting in a different manner at different stages of development. Yeah, almost um, like contextual. Exactly. And, um, you know, it's not like it's just my idea, right? So um, Dr. Daenerys has found and shown that FEV in serotonergic neurons seems to play this fascinating sort of dual role. I really enjoyed this paper that he published a number of years back where it looked like there's sort of a specification role a little, a little earlier on in development. You know, are you going to become a serotonergic neuron and sort of acquire this cell identity and then later on shifting from the perspective of FEV's function, shifting more to um, uh, executing and effecting um, maturation of those neurons. So I can pose this question, is FEV doing something similar broadly in the pancre pancreatic endocrine cells where possibly it has a role in specification earlier on and maybe a different role by possibly binding to different um, regions or with different binding partners? later on in terms of, let's say, a glucose-sensitive insulin secretion role um, in terms of functional maturation. And so that's kind of my current working model or hypothesis, but we certainly have, uh, and we have some data to support it, but we certainly have a lot more to go in terms of, um, you know, really fleshing out uh, whether this hypothesis is true or not, and also if it is, what exactly are the details behind it? Yeah. There's so much, you have so much interesting work going on in your laboratory. I'm sure that uh, young scientists listening to this are like, God, I want to apply and go work with her. There's so much fun things going on. Well, that would um, be great. We're actually looking for new people, looking for more people to join our team. So uh, if anyone's interested, definitely drop me a line. Oh, good. That's a, that's a great pitch too. Um, I wanted to, like, let's see, let's do a couple more questions. I just wanted to ask, have you collaborated with any GWAS people or uh, genetic people to look uh, at any FEV uh, gene defects in the T1D population? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, we just recently, a few months ago, started working with um, uh, a collaborator at UCSF who's very good at, at analyzing single cell ATAC-seq data. So those are some new data that we didn't really talk about, but just in one sentence, now in a single cell resolution, instead of looking at gene expression, we instead with this technique can look at global chromatin occupancy. And this new data set that we have on human, um, uh, we're getting some help from this collaborator at UCSF named Yin Shen um, and one of her graduate students to parse out those data. And one of the things um, we've asked them to help us with is to take existing uh, GWAS data sets for type one and for type two, in fact, um, and to analyze, you know, our single cell ataxic data set on the developing human um, from the perspective of the, of the type 1 and type 2 GWAS um, data, database lists. That's a slightly different question and, and much more broad than the one that you're asking, I think, which is much more tailored to FEV, which I think is a fascinating question. We haven't done that more focused um, interrogation, but I would love to do that. And I think that's a, a really wonderful idea. I mean, it is kind of curious, right? Because like FEV <clears throat> does have a, a mutation in FEV is, uh, can be associated with SIDS, uh, sudden infant death, and mm -hmm. uh, like Irwin's sarcoma. Mm -hmm. So those are pretty big hits to the physiology. But um, you wonder if there could be some kind of lesser mutation <clears throat> that might curtail the development of, uh, you know, the, the islets. And uh, there is some evidence that people who are on their way who already have one biomarker have a lower beta cell mass. 
So it is mm-hmm. kind of curious. It's just, you know, it's almost like you can just ask question after question after question to the system. Um, yeah, really great question. Can I just also have one more thing, which is that um, your question and your point is, is, is really well taken, but also I think raises another interesting point, which we haven't discussed yet, which is one of redundancy. So just because um, we see FEV as a gene marking a population, first of all, doesn't mean that it has a function. Some yeah. of the work I just told you about with the CRISPR knockout now gives us insight that it does have a functional role. But still, um, you know, depending on the phenotype, you might also wonder or guess that FEV could have some redundancy with some of these other types of family members. And so you may take a hit, as you said, and you might not completely lose beta cell mass or lose specification of beta cells, but you might take a significant hit, as you said. And maybe this kind of tips the scales and tips the balance just enough such that it leaves you vulnerable, right, to the combination of sort of environmental insults as well. So I think you have a really interesting uh, question and it's something that, you know, we want to think a little bit more deeply about as well. Yeah, well, I'm I'm just gonna say I've I've just enjoyed talking to you. You have such a great energy. You have incredible work um, and a depth of understanding of some of the most um, cutting edge tools. Uh, I would just say to any young scientists who are listening, or um, you know, people who are interested in the field of type one diabetes work, your lab is really cutting edge, and it just seems like such a great place to be. So um, I'm sure you're right. going to be getting some contacts after this podcast. I do wonder, um, and I thank you for everything that you've, you've, you've done and that you're currently doing. It's just a, a phenomenal. Um, and I did just sort of want to end on a high note, I guess. Do you have any words of encouragement for young scientists who are starting their postdoc or labs or during the pandemic? I mean, do you have a shout out to them? Sure. And can I just also thank you so much for your kind words and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you as well. And I've also really enjoyed our conversation. Um, words to young scientists during the pandemic in particular. Yeah, I I think I would say a few things. I would say, first of all, just, I would acknowledge that this is a really challenging time. Uh, And I think simply acknowledging that is an important first step. Um, A lot of us are trying to do business as usual. And um, it's just important, I think, to acknowledge that there are many new challenges. People have different challenges they're experiencing. I hope that you're able to stay, physically and mentally as healthy as possible and that your loved ones are safe. I would say that um, it's easy to say and harder to do, but I try to do this in my own life as well, especially now is if you can try to look for the silver linings and that applies of course to non-pandemic times as well, but I think it's particularly needed now. So what are some examples of of some of those silver linings? Well, uh, try to identify some scientific or professional opportunities. Have you have you always wanted to become fluent in R and Syrah and Monocle and some of these tools we talked about today? If so, computational work is actually something that probably lends itself among among all the stuff that we do. It probably lends itself best to uh, you know working from home and doing some deep dive on your own or doing online tutorials. And so I think this could be seen as an opportunity to have. Um, a chance to carve out some time for yourself to to really give yourself a chance to acquire some of those scientific or or professional skills. The other thing I was going to say is that many conferences are still happening, of course, remotely. And although it's really not the same as being in person, um, the registrations are often much less expensive than they were before. um, And you don't have to take all the time to travel. And so you might want to think about 
asking your PI if you could attend one or a few of such conferences and, and it could expose you to some new science that you wouldn't otherwise have seen. And oh, they still have some online versions of networking, which uh, believe it or not, is can still be really effective and a nice way to feel connected to people um, and to meet some new people. And I would also say that many of us just live such a fast-paced life in science these days that we don't have nearly enough time to just sit with our data and do reading and make connections and, and be sort of as thoughtful about existing data as we want to be because we're focusing on generating the next set of data. And so um, I think this time is also an opportunity to, to try to do that. And then finally, just try to be good to yourself and extend yourself some grace and understanding that, um, you know, we all, we all need some grace during this time and try to take care of yourself both you know, physically and mentally. It's such good advice and warmly said and with just tremendous wisdom. I, I so appreciate um, what you're doing, Julie, and just your your kind heart. Um, so thank you again for, for speaking with us today. Thank you so much, Monica. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. 